Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Let's get right to it uh, uh, this morning here with an important conversation with the White House. And what's so important here, John and Lisa, is we all know there are people that finesse their way into 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And there's others that lean over the desk and just grind out work. That's been the path of Brian Deese, director of National Economic Council, and most importantly of Middlebury and Yale. And then he went to work, John, and actually went from task to task, to task as he went up the Democratic Party food chain. Very pleased John? to say that Brian Deese of the National Economic Council joins us right now. Brian, you've seen the polls, you know where the focus is. The CBS poll in the last week, 65% say the administration is not focused enough on inflation. Brian, so let's start there. The degree to which you think you can do anything about it. Well, I think we've got a pretty straightforward and clear-eyed plan to do so. It starts with the context, as you were just noting. Historic economic growth, strongest in 40 years. Historic job growth, more than 6 million jobs last year. And the unemployment rate, the biggest drop in unemployment on record in this country, down to 3.9%. So we have a lot of strength in the economic recovery and a uniquely strong economic recovery. That positions us to go at the issue of price increases. And you heard the president yesterday with a pretty straightforward plan. Number one, the Fed needs to operate with the independence that uh, it has. He's nominated five very quality individuals to the Fed. They need to be confirmed without delay. And from his perspective, his approach is about expanding the productive capacity of the economy, making it easier for us to make more goods, provide more services. That's about unsticking supply chains. It's about make a boosting competition, making our economy more competitive. And it's about lowering kitchen table costs, going right at those costs that most directly impact families. So he's got a straightforward plan here. I yeah. think it's the right plan for the country, and we're going to stick at it. Brian, you started with the Federal Reserve, so let's go there briefly. Mohamed Dalarian of Bloomberg Opinion and, of course, the president of Queen's College, Cambridge, said in the last few weeks on our network that this was one of the worst Fed calls in the history of the Federal Reserve. Yet Chairman Powell got a second term and you were part of that interview process. What did you hear in that interview process that convinced you that this is the right person to lead this Fed through this current environment? The president was pretty clear about his criteria for nominees to the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. Uh, expertise, judgment and independence. And he saw in Chairman Powell, but also Leo Brainerd, incredible uh, expertise and judgment as well as experience. And he thinks these are the right people to lead our, the Fed's effort and has now added on with three additional nominees. If you look at this group of five, you see ideological diversity, you see differences in academic style and temperament, but overall you see extraordinary breadth of experience across the board. This is a very solid group of five people to get, uh, get to work on this effort. So we're confident that these are the right individuals. And importantly, what you heard from the president yesterday, we're confident in putting our faith in the institution. Unlike our predecessor, 
the president is trying to reinforce that having the independence of the Federal Reserve to make difficult uh, decisions in this environment is incredibly important. It's important for our yeah. economy. It's important for our democracy. You've got to make some difficult decisions now to break up, build back better. The president implied that that was the direction of travel now. The things that you can do, often we fall into the trap of just talking about numbers. Let's talk about substance. What are the pieces of that that you think you can pass and can alleviate some of the price pressure in the near to medium term? We'll start with the biggest cost that a typical uh, family faces on a monthly basis. Healthcare, prescription drugs, childcare. Those are the biggest costs. And this bill has elements that would go directly at it and provide relief in very practical ways. Meaning no American family, middle class family pays more than 7% of their income in childcare. That provides economic security. It also will help get more people back to work because parents, particularly women, will have more support. Healthcare. We have seen 5 million more Americans this year get health care because we made it cheaper and easier for them to get access. Yeah. Continuing that support, extending that support, common sense, lowers costs for families. Same with prescription drugs as well. Those are the kinds of things that I think speak to the economic challenges that families are facing and are also practical and have broad support, broad support well, among economists, but also the American people. But Brian, last night, President Biden conceded that some of those exact programs are going to be very hard to pass, in particular, the child tax credit. So given the fact that renewable energy is basically one of the most important areas that seems like there is bipartisan support for, what are some of the provisions that are passable right now that could lower prices? Well, I'd just be very clear. The clean energy provisions in this bill will not only make it easier and cheaper to deploy clean energy and address the climate crisis, it will reduce energy costs. The child care provisions in this package will not only reduce child care costs for families, but help uh, people get to work. The health care provisions will make uh, improve health for our families, but also lower costs. Those are all things that I think are practical, would address costs, and are doable in this context. Brian, earlier in the inflationary uh, outlook, we saw a lot of out, uh, outsized gains for the lowest income earners, that they actually were seeing some of the biggest wage gains. We've seen that shift recently, and the latest bank earnings show a 15% increase for banker pay over the past year. The expectation is it will continue to increase from here. At what point do you start to get concerned about a wage price spiral? Well, one of the things that's remarkable about 2021 is the fact that the wage increases were skewed to the bottom end of the distribution. So the bottom 50% of earners, and in fact, earners in, in sectors like leisure and hospitality saw historic record wage gains. That's the kind of uh, progress that we want to see. And also, not only because those are people that uh, need wage increases the most, but also it is the, it creates the least concern about wages and prices uh, interacting with each other. I think that what you heard from Joe Biden yesterday is people seeing their wages go up. That's a good thing. That's part of an economy that is progressing and growing in a different way than it has in the past. And so what we want to do is we want to keep that uh, economic momentum going <clears throat> while taking steps to uh, have prices normalized. That's what most projections suggest uh, will happen, but we need to stay on target. And that's why the president is being very clear about the plan that he's got moving forward and also clear about where he needs Congress to confirm uh, uh, qualified nominees for the Federal Reserve to work on practical elements of Build Back Better that yeah. would speak to the cost that families are facing. This is where the hope is right now. And I think we all agree 
We all hope you'll be successful. We all want the best for this country. At the moment, though, people don't feel this. You say wage growth, people say 7% inflation. You say things are getting better, they say things are getting more expensive at the pump. The president yesterday said you could see what we did when we came out and worked with other countries to do something about crude supplies. We saw what happened. Crude came down, it's straight back up right now. It's at 86, just south of $87 a barrel. Brian, within that address yesterday, the president said we can do more to increase oil supplies. Brian, specifically, specifically, what can he do to increase crude supplies? Well, we can, uh, we can work to accelerate the release of strategic reserves that is currently underway in the United States. And we can, working with other oil-consuming nations, accelerate supplies onto the market. We can work with oil-producing countries around the world so that the o OPEC Plus uh, countries are actually meeting the targets that they have set for themselves. Some of the tightness in oil markets right now is a function of the fact that those target, those supply targets have not been hit because there's been yeah. uh, events in certain countries. We can work uh, and engage with those countries. And look, to your broader point, these, this is work not yet finished. And the American people are frustrated, understandably so. This has been a tough couple of years. COVID and the uncertainty that it creates and prices create uncertainty. But that's why it's important that we have a clear plan and action that we can communicate in practical ways to, that will impact people's lives. Brian, there's and a big problem in what you just said. Allow me to jump in. It's the plus in OPEC plus. If you dial 1-800 OPEC right now, you're dialing Russia. This is where I need some input from you. Are the foreign policy goals of the administration now at odds with your economic objectives? Well, we are meeting the, uh, the Russian government and making clear to President Putin the stakes and the costs associated with his action. That is about, uh, that is about making clear to him the stakes for him to make the decision. Those are decisions that ultimately he has to make. Uh, that's not uh, on the United States. But we have been very clear that we will be prepared for any contingency, not only in terms of imposing significant economic costs on the Russians, but also working with our partners to mitigate the impact, including in energy markets. That's not easy. It requires steady, consistent diplomacy with our allies, with other oil producing countries. Uh, and it is work yet to be completed but that's the focus of this administration in trying to make sure that whatever uh, international and geopolitical events uh, we have to manage through, we are keeping front and center what we can do to help protect and support American consumers uh, and middle class families here. Brian, that sounds great. So let's go there. Let's get some re real detail on this. The president said that maybe we can look into alleviating some of the pressure, some of the dependence of Europeans on Russian energy. Brian, when you try and work to get crude output up higher. As you know, a conflict right now is what's happening with Russia. Europe's in the middle of that. Germany's in the middle of that. The United States, to some degree, is in the middle of that right now, too, Brian. So what on earth can you do? Can you just run me through the very specific part of the policy effort that you could do to alleviate some of the dependence of the Europeans on Russian gas? Well, in the very immediate term, the focus is on how we can make sure that European countries have sufficient access to natural gas to get through the winter months, but also uh, to alleviate pressures uh, in the spring. And very specifically, what that means is working with our allies and partners, particularly gas producing countries, to understand what additional capacity exists and how we could move and extend that capacity into the region. That is country by country. 
Uh, it's very specific and technical, but we're working those plans yeah. so that we have them in place uh, for any contingency. Do we have capacity here at home in the US, Brian, to do more? These, of course, are private companies. It's not like the Saudis who can just dial it in and increase output. Do we have capacity here and what could the administration do to advise them, to encourage them, incentivize them to increase that capacity? Well, with respect to natural gas, our export capacity is, we are at, at close to uh, maximum export capacity. So what we can principally do is work with allies and try to identify and arrange ways to move more product uh, in other ways. But bigger picture, oil trades as a global commodity on a global market. And it is a function of supply and demand. And ultimately, the most powerful issue right now is working to get the stated supply commitments to actually be delivered on. And that's yeah. going to be the most impactful, as well as working with allies to put reserves on the table. Those are the steps that we're focused on. Brian, I know you've got to run. I just wanted to squeeze one important question in. The president, for a lot of people yesterday in that news conference, really took one for the team. He stuck up for all of you when people questioned the leadership around him, specifically on the economy. He talked about what he underestimated, overestimated. He talked about what he needs to do better personally. Brian, I said on air last week that we haven't heard enough from you and I want to hear more from you. And it's great we're hearing from you today. What do you personally need to do more of? Well, I think that the president was very clear eyed, as he always is, about both the progress we've made and the challenges that we've faced. I think that one of the perennial challenges in these jobs is making sure that we are hearing from all corners, getting outside of Washington in terms of the perspective and the input, and trying to hear from everyone we can, in term, including constructive criticism. That's going to be a goal for all of us in this White House, starting with the president uh, for 2022. And I think that that, that helps. It's a, I, I, you know, working here in this environment is 24-7. It's nonstop. <clears throat> that can be difficult to do. But uh, we are resolved to make sure that we are hearing from everybody. We're listening to everyone and also uh, getting out outside of Washington and trying to explain the ways in which the steps we are taking are actually impacting people and meeting them where they are. You know, that's going to be that's going to be work that we'll try to do more of, uh, even as we continue to manage the day to day and all the issues we've just discussed. Brian, can I say thank you on behalf of the team? It's great to catch up and we all hope that we can have more exchanges like this one in the near future. Brian Deese there the director of the National Economic Council. Right now, and this is really well-timed, Peter Cheer joins us, head of macro strategy at Academy uh, Securities. And what's important here is the acuity of his note. And what's great about Peter Cheer, folks, is the immediacy of his note. He writes about the zeitgeist. Peter, I love, love, love how you're talking about the bet of inflation stasis or inflation even rolling over and how the Fed will shift its rhetoric. How close is Chairman Powell to shocking the markets with a dovish tone? I think we're probably a few weeks away from that. I think we need to see a little bit more bad data or weak data. We're starting to see inventory builds. I think some of the supply chain issues are going away. We're seeing slower retail sales. I think we're going to get this realization that the economy isn't quite as good as we thought. And unfortunately, I think the first part of that, the Fed is going to continue to talk hawkish. And that's why I see a little right. bit more downside to this market. 
Let's not do the econobabble, Peter Cheer. Let's stay within the fixed income market and maybe look at the fan distribution of yield. What will yield do if Powell yields to a slowing economy and moves from the four-ish parlor game to three rate hikes or even, dare I say, two rate hikes? How does your world change? I actually think we're going to see lower yields. So I'm actually very bullish right now on treasuries. Seems slightly awkward. And I think what we're going to see is a big risk off move. We saw a little bit of it yesterday, right? That was one of the first times in a while we've seen yeah. yields go lower and stocks down. So give us a sense of what the trajectory has to be in the data to lead to this sort of dovish surprise and the idea that perhaps the Fed is just job owning. I think it's going to be a little bit gradual, right? We're going to see little signs that the supply chain's opening up. We're going to see signs that inventory is building, signs that retail uh, spending is slowing. So it's going to take a few weeks, maybe a month. And part of the issue is going to be the politicians keep putting this pressure on. We need the politicians to take a step back, look at jobs, look at those things. I think we're going to run into a much bigger problem at the end of the year where, where we're headed. And it's not going to be inflation. It's going to be about jobs. And if the administration thinks people care about inflation, wait till they see how much they care if we don't have jobs because they cut growth too quick. Okay, so you think that we're actually closer to uh, a looser labor market than a tighter one that we're seeing in the wage increases. Is that correct? Yes, I think we're going to start seeing some pressure from all this hiking that we're going to see the economy slow down a little bit and the job growth slow down. Okay, so going forward, I'm curious if you're going into big tech right now. No, I'm still shedding that. One thing, so I've been very nervous about big tech. I think when we start our year outlooks, we are very nervous about big tech. That's worked out very well. I'm starting to get a little bit nervous that we're seeing this creep. It went from the ARC type stocks to the NASDAQ 100 to the NASDAQ composite. And I think if we get another leg lower, it's actually going to be led by the S&P 500 as people start selling the stocks that haven't gone down as much. So that's where I think the next leg comes down is this further shift to the S&P. I'm not quite ready to buy yet, but I am starting to look at that. And I probably will start buying with some of the most beaten up sectors first. Hey, Pete, good to catch up, sir. As always, Peter Chia of Academy Securities. We are thrilled now to bring in Neela Richardson. She is a different chief economist. She is at the automatic data processing company, ADP. Yes, they do an employment report of some note, but far more, they have massive granularity on the American labor economy. Neela, you've got a quote on jobs of 50 employees or under, and it's exploded out from 132,000 out to 200-something thousand as well. I want you to discuss what your shop knows about the competition of Amazon, Target, and those warehouses with Small Business America. Well, first of all, small businesses are holding their own. Uh, they were the first to recover from the pan pandemic uh, and to start adding headcount, even though they were the hardest hit by those widespread closures in early uh, 2020. Uh, but they've had some challenges in competition with these larger firms. They're not able to recruit in the same way. They can't pay and retain uh, in their compensation packages in the same way as the bigger companies. So we've seen them continue to power ahead, but the competition has gotten stronger and more active at the same time. And when you talk about granularity, it's really showing up in the wage gains. And we can talk about that, but we're seeing some wage pressures at the end of the year. Uh, they're stronger than they were in earlier parts of 2021. Neela, let's build on that, especially in light of the softer than expected uh, jobless claims. Some people might say, as John was indicating earlier, this is an indication of a softening and perhaps a less tight labor market than many people had thought. Based on the granularity that you've just been talking about, is is that consistent with your observations? 
No. You know, when we ask our, our clients at ADP, what is the biggest challenge that you're facing? And especially for small firms, it's finding people. It's the number one challenge from businesses, from one employee to 500. It's the number one challenge. And that has been consistent through 2021. It is consistent as we turn the page on a new year. But we are seeing that show up in wage pressures. We're seeing that uh, industries that had a talent shortage before the pandemic are where we're seeing the job gain. So it's not the industries that have been hardest hit, like leisure and hospitality. It's professional business services, finance, information tech. That's where you're seeing some double digit wage gains from a year ago as of December. And what's also notable where we're also seeing wage pressure is not for older workers, but for younger Gen Z. We're seeing them, those who have kept their jobs for a year or more are seeing the strongest gains of anybody. So this is a lopsided market with some industries outperforming and some sectors outperforming performing. And that's all creating a lot of noise in terms of wages. And we've seen this shift also where initially it was the lowest income earners who are seeing the biggest wage pop. And now we're seeing it shift to a broader number of sectors. Can you gauge out, can you game out based on your experience, how sticky some of these gains are? I mean, is this a one-time kind of payment or are we going to see uh, commensurate types of increases next year, the year after? you're not going to see wages be the push to inflation if it continues. If you look at some of these firms, especially those in the service sector, the margins are thin. And I know you all talk about corporate profits and margins all the time. There is only so much wiggle room on wages. So yes, you might see an increase or a pop uh, to get workers into the door for these service sector firms, especially in leisure and hospitality and restaurants and bars. But the continuation of year over year Mm -hmm. wage gains at case that we're seeing them is not likely and not likely to drive inflation. Neela, we've got a a dispersion here. We always have that. That's not news. Nebraska under 2% unemployment rate, Ohio a 4-ish statistic, even Texas 4 or 5-ish statistic as well. When you calibrate a fully employed America, what's the unemployment rate you have in your head? Obviously below 4%, but dare I say, can we be fully employed at 3.2%, 3%? or even a stunning 2.9% unemployment rate? By a traditional definition, yes. But by a definition that recognizes that the workforce is smaller now than it was two years ago, no. There are 3.6 million jobs that we had in the economy two years ago. We don't have now. Uh, We haven't created jobs on top of that 2019 uh, number. And so, yes, if you look at just a rate, a rate that includes a denominator, which shows a smaller level of a workforce participation. Yeah, fair, okay. And you can get, you can get yeah. there. You can do the math. The math yeah. works, Tom. Okay. But if you really look at all those jobs on okay. the sidelines, I don't yeah. think you can Remind us, any guests that mentions numerator or denominator, we don't talk to. Neela, okay, that's enough math. I want to talk, Neela, about the idea of a fully employed America and the granularity that ADP sees. Who leads the way? Large corporations, mid-size, or mom and pop? Right now, large companies are leading the way. They're the ones that are showing that they can hire and hire strongly in this market. This is a market where everybody's trying to add headcount at the same time. It's not a traditional market. Um, And so when everybody's running the race at the same time, the bigger and the stronger you are, the, the 
faster you can go. And that's what we're seeing with large companies. They're really outpacing in terms of gains. Will that continue? I don't think so, because if history is any guide, it's really smaller firms that contribute the most to uh, worker gains. In fact, in, in the previous expansion, small companies produced two-thirds of the net job gain. So yes, in this time of transition, bigger companies are leading and winning. That wasn't true through the whole recovery. It's true now. But I, I suspect that small firms gain ground once the economy completely normalizes. Neela, thank you. A really good point to finish on. Neela Richardson there of the ADP, ADP Chief Economist. As we talk to Craig Moffat about 5G of Moffat Nathanson and his expertise on our worries and fears of 5G, it's a surveillance process. We look at experts. We try to go to experts to give you perspective on radio, on television. Lisa Bramwitz and Tom Keen now with Daniel Tannenbaum. Dan Tannenbaum, partner and head of America's anti-financial crime at Oliver Wyman, and actually knowledgeable, more than politicians, on sanctions. Dan, through the Tannenbaum prism, what did you hear yesterday in the press conference that will change the behavior of Mr. Putin? Well, thanks for the intro, Tom. I, I didn't hear anything in, in the press conference yesterday that, that is likely to change the behavior um, of, of Mr. Putin. I think you've heard since December, this White House um, and allies talk about the threat of sanctions should Russia move its forces across the border, as a reminder, again, uh, into Ukraine. Um, I think hearing that emphasized again, I mean, it, it did sound actually a little Trumpy at some points talking about kind of, you know, these are, are kind of the mother of all sanctions, so to speak. Um, I think continuing to hold the line on what will happen um, was pretty consistent from what we've heard out of the, the administration over the last month or so. Okay, the last month or so, but, you know, let's try to get over, let's try to do the Oliver Wyman thing and actually look in advance. So for Apple Computer... Apple iPhones, what do sanctions mean? Do they pull out of Russia? So, I mean, this, the threats of sanctions have taken on a variety of form. Everything from sanctions on Nord Stream 2 impacting energy, cutting off Russia from global payments networks, sanctioning large Russian banks, and potentially restricting the importation of U.S. origin goods. When I talk to clients, I'm already hearing institutions, not necessarily in the consumer product space, but in the financial services industry, begin to work on asset repatriation plans to begin to look at everything up to a potential market exit of Russia. And that could happen in advance of any further incursion into Ukraine. I think the, the market concerns are really sparking a lot of noise and jitters where some businesses are calculating that the risk might not be worth the reward in the market going forward. Just to give you some sense, Anthony Blinken, who's over in Europe meeting with Germany's Olaf Scholz, uh, is speaking right now and he's talking about the negotiations with Russia and the alliance with Europe, saying that the Allies' aim is to seek diplomatic resolution with Russia. This really speaks to this feeling that we increasingly get that perhaps their hands are tied. You point out that sanctions have not worked in the past. Can you give us some details about how clients are preparing for the escalation that feels increasingly inevitable? I think, as we've seen from 2014 going forward, sanctions between the U.S., EU and Russia certainly had a material impact on the Russian economy. You've certainly seen what was a growing economy in kind of the global scale in Russia shrink and look more insular as, as it became Fortress Russia trying to insulate itself from sanctions. 
I'm not seeing anyone do this yet, but I'm certainly seeing more and more clients in the financial services sector really begin to weigh, is this a market that we want to be in anymore, given the uncertainty and all of the risk that exists to our business? I think it's a lot of planning. I'm not necessarily seeing anyone sell off or pull the trigger quite yet, but there's a lot of watching and waiting. And I think there's a lot of companies that are really beginning to be concerned that this might not be worth it being in the market anymore. So where will we see this when you look at a market impact, just simply because, as we were talking about, the announcement about Bitcoin restrictions in Russia is having an effect, as Tom was talking about earlier, on the price of Bitcoin. Are there certain asset classes that are going to have disproportionate and correlated uh, blowouts one way or another in response to some sort of action by the U.S. on Russia? I think looking across a variety of sectors, I'm seeing potential impact, not necessarily isolated to one. I think when I look at correspondent banking businesses that have operated in, in Russia for some time, those seem like prime ones that might be looking to, to cut themselves out of the market pretty quickly. But I can't necessarily isolate it to one specific segment. The institutions I'm talking to really cut across a variety of different sectors. So this could be broader than just a, a specific element of the market. Dan, I, I, I want to go back here to Apple, but then I want to take it to a different company that's maybe more appropriate to the negotiations and your expertise on sanctions. You have Crimea 2014, maybe you have Ukraine 2022. You've got Mr. Putin, he's going nowhere. And then you have the law against Apple, which has to do with what Apple has to do to get business done in Russia. What's the law against Caterpillar? I mean, Caterpillar is machinery. That's our number one export to Russia. Do we have to assume that with any form of movement into Ukraine, that Russia's not going to be able to buy Caterpillar products? So I think it's to be made very clear, and, and President Biden tried to articulate this yesterday and, and kind of walk back elements of this. The sanctions and the response of sanctions will be kind of proportional to the actions that Russia takes. There's a variety of different levers that the U.S. has begun to package with its EU allies in terms of what sanctions could look like that include things like import bans of American origin agriculture products. Um, that's not to say that is the lever they'll pull. I think you have to keep some powder dry in the situation. So I'd be surprised if sanctions are levied all at <clears> once. <throat> uh, you know, there's certainly a lot of concern around whether sanctions are levied preemptively which could give Russia justification to further move into Ukraine, or they're levied after they move into Ukraine, which didn't really help the last no. time, and they haven't given up Crimea. Mr. Tannenbaum, thank you so much for joining us today. Daniel Tannenbaum, Oliver Wyman, their expert on sanctions. I learned a lot there. That was great. We speak the best and brightest, and that would be Craig Moffat founding partner, senior research analyst at Moffitt Nathanson. And Craig, I don't want to turn this into a consumer interview about like, am I going to be safe on my plane with my 5G phone? Forget about that. What I want to talk about here is how the, the, the people you are expert on, how they adjust to what is clearly a dysfunctional U.S. government, transportation, and that. What did Verizon and the rest of them do with a U.S. government hit over the head by Emirates Air? Yeah, I, I tell you, Tom, first of all, thank you for having me on and uh, good to see you again. Good to see you, Jonathan, Lisa. Um, I, I've got to say, you, you hit the nail on the head. This is a highly dysfunctional government uh, and, and it really goes back quite a few years. I saw in the, I heard in the teaser you were, you know, there was the comment 
22 snuck up on everybody. It's hard for a calendar year to sneak up on people. It, you can kind of find it in your in your calendar yeah. if you look. And yet, and, and by the way, this is not a 2022 story. We started talking about this spectrum band being used for 5G back in 2016. So we, the FAA has had five years to prepare. And the auction for these for this spectrum band happened in the end of 2020, closed in early 21. And a year later, the FCC suddenly <clears throat> says, oh, my goodness, wait a second. It, it is unbelievable to me that that it took five years before the FCC, before the FAA right. seriously engaged on this issue. Oh, so, Kirk, you nailed brown physics. I mean, I heard you were summa cum laude in brown physics long ago. Let's bring up the formula here that matters, which is the area definition of an antenna. Al from New Jersey gave me this. Thanks, Al, for that. A equals lambda squared divided by four, four pi g. The Moffat translation of this, folks, is this is going to get solved by rotating the antennas at JFK so they don't approach the runways. Is it that simple a fix, Dr. Moffat? Well, it, 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 it's actually a little simpler than that even. So look, the radial propagation, so think of a circle, pi r squared, of the, the area covered. Right now they're talking about turning down power levels uh, for two miles around an airport. Two miles around an airport, in some some airports are far enough outside of downtown areas that doesn't matter. Some, like LaGuardia or Hobby or Love or or um, or Reagan, it actually matters quite a bit. Um, my suspicion is the solution will be remember that that sector that antennas are sectorized. That is, they they serve an air, an arc of about 120 degrees. Um, you won't turn down power on the entire antenna. You'll turn down power on single sectors that face runways. And remember, what's at what's at issue here is the altimeter for the, that is measuring the height of the airplane only when you're quite close to the runway. Uh, so you will turn down the power level on antennas that face runways for that sector. It's not a terribly hard problem to think of how you get to the solution. And by the way, the ultimate solution is actually fix the damn altimeters um, that that are subject to interference outside of the band they're supposed to be operating so, in. So, Craig, if um, it's a simple, if it's a relatively simple fix, and frankly, this whole episode has exposed, as you said, the dis, dis profound dysfunctionality of the government on a broader level. How do you then factor in some of the infrastructure spending that you are pointing to that could actually help the telecom sector, that could help some of these 5G rollouts at a time when the government doesn't seem to be that on top of things? Yeah, look, I, I think the infrastructure that goes down a completely different path. The, the infrastructure bill for broadband, for example, pushes um, the responsibility for broadband construction out to the states. So you're going to have 50 individual states coming up with their own proposals for how they think about uh, cost justifying individual projects, where they want to target. Um, that's, that's its own level of dysfunctional, I think. And the reason that, that Congress chose that path was that they were frustrated with the FCC in part because of the FCC's handling of uh, the so-called RDOF auctions for other rural broadband. Um, I actually think the FCC did a pretty good job in that case, but there was frustration over that. And so they chose an alternative that I think is also likely to be dysfunctional. 
I think in this case, though, to go back to the the, the issue of, of the FAA and the FCC, I don't think there's any ambiguity this time who's at fault. This is a problem of the FAA, not the FCC. The FCC was very clear, um, had a very measured process throughout this entire episode, and it was the FAA that simply refused to engage. So I think this time you have to point the finger at the FAA, and you can understand why Verizon and AT&T are so incredibly frustrated um, that at the not even the 11th hour, it's it's well past midnight, and suddenly to raise these concerns about yesterday's news is incredibly frustrating for the carriers. The year snuck up on us, didn't it, Tom? 22, I feel, still feel like I'm in 2020. So chill this morning, Craig, on his sofa. Craig Moffat there of Moffat Nathanson. Thank you, Craig. Send our best to Michael, too. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.